0: 3, first 13 verses, then Jesus said to the crowd and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do, and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do, for they preach but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They all do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their philosophies broad and their fringes long, and they place, life, love the place of honour at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace and being called rabbis by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher— and you are all brothers. And call no man your father, nurse, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whosoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whosoever humbled himself will be exalted. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you set the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you travel across the sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much the child of hell as yourself.
1: Uh, Jennifer and I were in Prague, in the Czech Republic, in August of last year, just for a few days. It's a remarkable place. If, if any of you have been there, it was insanely crowded. But uh, we were kind of staying right near the old city, and, and the architecture, the churches, are really medieval and almost like it's, it's imposing. It doesn't make you, uh, didn't make me feel like it would be good to be close to God. Just that it would be a terror. And that's the old part of of the city. Uh, the relatively newer part actually, out, outside the outskirts from there, uh, is still heavily influenced in architecture and even like the, the stations, the transit stations, by its communist past, by when it was controlled by the Soviet Union. Um, it was interesting for me, how did that happen? Got way ahead. Um, because I'd read about this man before and been quite intrigued by some of his writing. His name is Václav Havel. He's a Czech playwright and philosopher, politician. Um, And he was, you know, really, I guess, Jen and I and anybody else who's been there, it wouldn't be the same without him. He was a leader of what's called the Velvet Revolution when, uh, at the time, Czechoslovakia gained its independence from Soviet Union. And then years after that, divided into the Czech Republic and Slovakia. Uh, Václav Havel is is a man of faith, Christian faith, and informed by it greatly. I was reading in a Tim Keller book in this last couple of weeks a quote by Havel when he was imprisoned. He was imprisoned on multiple occasions. And he talks about when he looked out the small window of his room or his cell And he could see only the crown of a great tree. And he writes, I was overcome by a sensation. I had stepped outside of time and all of the beautiful things that I had ever seen and experienced existed in a total co-present. Just in gazing at this part of this tree. An eternity. I was flooded with a sense of ultimate happiness and harmony. I was standing at the edge of the infinite. This is a transcendent experience. As a Christian, his life was formed by his following, Christ, and he had a tremendous, enormous impact on the world. A question for you, some would be able to nod quickly, others, not so sure, Have you ever had a transcendent experience like that? How do you explain it? It's religious in nature, though some wouldn't use that word. For some people today, I don't think this is many, even people who don't subscribe to a religious faith, but the question would be are those transcendent experiences simply fairy tales? Or are they drug induced or torture induced? Something happening simply with our brain chemistry that can be explained and explained away. For Havel, it mattered, this experience. And that experience, in turn, impacted the world and made an enormous difference. Yet these views persist. These views that religion is at best fairy tale. Okay, that's all right for you. You know, kind of nice, it's good you believe, but That's like people used to do that. And you seem like a nice person, so that's okay. But somehow, sometimes people can think if they're feeling that, but I'm much more sophisticated. By the way, you can treat people of other religious faiths like this, and that's just as wrong, by the way. The views persist that religion is at best fairy tale, or at worst, and there's much evidence for this, at worst terribly dangerous and we would be better without it. That it's a vestige of the past. It's vestigial. And it's time to outgrow it. You yourself may have, as I say, felt looked down upon by others. Maybe even in your own family or your friends or co-workers. It's interesting to note a primary theme repeated in scripture over and over again. So you think in some ways that the the tension and struggle over religion is non-religious people, right? Kind of critiquing religion either in nice ways or in quite judgmental ways. But really, in our Christian scripture, you could argue that one of the central battles, and this is in our word, this, this word of God, one of the central battles is a battle over religion and about religion. This isn't simply in the New Testament. It's not simply with Jesus when he speaks the words that George read for us today, warning us about religion. We hear an awful lot of Christian sermons all the time on this. Last week we recalled that in the letters in the New Testament, the, often the, the injunction to stand firm, right? Stand firm. Did you hear this growing up? You need to stand firm. And those injunctions are often in the New Testament, stand firm against the yoke of religion. So in the Old Testament, you can look at Isaiah chapter 58. I would encourage you to read this in your own time after the service or this week, the Old Testament warns against false religion. You act like religion matters to you. You fast, so that's a religious exercise. You fast, and then you quarrel and fight. You understand what's happening there? You ever been part of religious communities or churches where people talk about God in really nice terms and then they fight like crazy? I always say, and we remind this as as leaders, elders and myself, if you're talking about the church, you always need to remember that you need to be the church as you're doing that. So the center of this is Jesus Christ himself in Matthew 23, where it really comes together, and that's where we'll see this struggle with religion reach its peak but it's in the Old Testament and it's in the rest of the New Testament as well. The way that I picture it in my mind is it's centered upon Jesus Christ, but it swirls around him as well. So in Isaiah, you fast and then you quarrel and fight. Hear this. You oppress your workers. Don't tell me you know what true religion is if you oppress your workers. This is the Old Testament. This is the religion that I choose, Isaiah 58 will say. To set the oppressed free. To share your bread with the hungry. To bring the homeless poor into your house. Jesus in Matthew 23, as George read a portion of that for us. You should read the whole chapter. These woes to the Pharisees, woes about bad religion. He calls them later in the text blind guides. You travel over land and sea. George did read this part for us. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. Proselyte means convert. So someone who joins the faith. You travel over land and sea to win one person to your group. And then, I love that Jesus said this. It's the kind of thing that people like me like. And then you turn him into twice the son of hell that you are. Religious people don't respond well to those kinds of words. But they are the words of our Lord and Savior. He says in verse 23 of Matthew chapter 23, You're, you're really very religious, or you think you are but you've forgotten justice and mercy and faithfulness. Apparently, they don't know what true religion is or they're unwilling to practice it. He continues. He says, you're like a dish. Do you know when it's, it's, it's worse if you're having company over and you're putting out dishes? Like we have home group every Tuesday night and if I'm grabbing the coffee cups or the mugs from the, the um, cupboards, looking for words, And you grab one and you look inside and it's really, really dirty. And you think, how did that get in there? must be one of my kids' fault. I would never do something like that. But you think, oh, I'm glad I didn't put that out because you can have a dish that looks really, really nice on the outside, but on the inside it's dirty. Jesus uses that imagery to the Pharisees. He says you're like a dish, and you wash the outside of that dish really, really nicely, but the inside is still dirty with old food. People are going to be grossed out by it worse if you're in a restaurant or something. He continues. Actually, he says you're kind of like a cemetery to the Pharisees. I I think he's aggressive, but he's also having a little bit of fun. He's picking some pretty strong metaphors. It's almost like they're not upset enough yet or something. So he says you're like a cemetery. Some of you have been to New Orleans. No need to raise your hand, Co. But in, in New Orleans and in any other place where the ground is kind of in a way below sea level, they can't bury people. Makes sense, right? So the tombs are above ground. So you go to the cemeteries in there, and some of them are quite you know, well-decorated and beautiful. And those who remember Hurricane Katrina, some of those cemeteries were just wiped out. Jesus says, you're like one of those tombs. Because people take really good care of it and they wash it on the outside. And someone who pays special attention to one of those tombs. But inside, it's just dead men's bones. This is our Lord and Savior talking about the religion of the Pharisees. So, if you think that the world has a struggle with religion, right? Remind yourself, particularly if you're a Christian, remind yourself that the Lord that you follow has a problem with religion. Jesus' arguably central struggle as he walked this earth and ministered. Consistently, apparently, and I say apparently because... Not actually, but to those in charge of the religion of the day, he was always breaking the rules. The rules of Sabbath, Sabbath, the rules of healing, rituals. Most of all, he was willing to accept and to be with people who should not be accepted. And this was offensive to people. He talked to the woman at the well. He healed the poor and sick. He touched lepers. So the heart of this tension with religion as a Christian is found in Jesus Christ himself for us to understand. It's reflected in the rest of the New Testament. It's Galatians 5.1 that I referred to earlier. Christ has set us free and if Christ has set us free then stand firm. Don't let yourself be burdened or the word is enslaved by all of the dictates of religious systems again. Stand firm against religious control. Because some of you know what happens when you hand over religious control to people. It tends not to work out very well. And echoes of this in James 1.27. This is true religion, you'll see there. So the question in our culture would be, should we throw religion out? If Jesus is against religion, right? At least bad religion. And, of course, the answer I'm going to give you, no, is no, we shouldn't throw religion out, but we should be wary of bad religion. True religion offers a call to faith and, in Christian understanding, a response to Jesus Christ. We are not, first and foremost, to offer religious enterprise or experience. And much talk that I hear about church these days is basically people's enjoyment or non-enjoyment of a particular experience. Even within our own community, as we seek to follow Jesus Christ, most of the conversations that we have are not focused on Jesus Christ. They're focused on, you know, what did we like or what can we change to get more people, whatever it might be. What, we're, what we want to offer is people the opportunity to respond to Jesus Christ, not to religious enterprise or experience, but rather, in our understanding, the gospel. We are to bear witness to the love of God for the whole world. And this love is found in Jesus Christ. So last week, and I know I mentioned him probably too much. Anybody anybody that I mention up here, most of them don't like to be mentioned. But anyway, Peter Takas, who sits near the back there, he's a bit of a prophetic voice in our community. Some of you have benefited from that. In other words, he's able to say words that are true. And you think, how did he know that? And they're not scary like, you know, you're going to leave and, you know, you'll get in a car accident. Not like that but more ways that he can kind of, by God's grace and the presence of the Holy Spirit, uh, God uses him to, for me and I know others, speak to some of the things that are in my heart. Last week I was leaving the sanctuary after the service, and Peter made sure to find me. And I think in response to the sermon, but Peter simply said this, it sounds almost cliched, but when you know someone saying it with feeling and conviction... And wonder, it's transcendent. Peter simply said to me, You know what? And looking right in my eyes, too, right? When I find out that God loves me, I can love him in return. What he's actually said is, in Christian understanding, I can become human, who I was supposed to be. The conundrum is that we live in a world where many people do think that if we just got rid of religion, all would be harmonious. I think, at any given time in history, you can see what, what the things that can happen when you guys, ourselves together, just citizens, people, when we don't read, when we don't educate ourselves. Right? The church can suffer, society can suffer. There are things that you should know to be able to talk to people. And somebody who says, if we just got rid of religion, everything would be better. Uh, Almost all intelligent thinkers, Christian or otherwise, say, hang on a second. The problem with that is that people want things like human rights, equality, benevolence, even sacrifice. In the West, I'm not saying, I'm not castigating any other faith, but in the West, and we all live in the West, in that, in that part of this part of the world and some would say around the world, these things human rights, equality, benevolence, sacrifice, these things come from Christianity. They are at their best a reflection of who Jesus Christ. And so people say, well religion does bad things, so let's get rid of religion but keep all of these things. It's a, it's a difficulty. Charles Taylor, Canadian philosopher. He's absolutely brilliant, and if you love reading big, gigantic books, read his book called Secular Age. Almost every smart person in, in universities refers to this book, whether it's sociology or psychology or whatever field. Charles Taylor says, the problem with this kind of thinking, that's not his quote, that's Friedrich Nietzsche. Taylor is much more gentle, and Taylor is Christian faith. He's Catholic. Nietzsche's certainly not. But Taylor says it's a subtraction story. You can't just take out religion and think that you'll have all the good pieces left. This is Frederick Nietzsche who put it this way. Why, well, first before I read this, you can see it, but why is it that Christian faith has these things, equality or should? And I and I understand, I'm perfectly willing to accept that Christians often sp- move away from these things. And sometimes people who have no Christian faith are better than Christians at holding the Christian values. But why is it at its heart that we can say equality, sacrifice, caring for the poor and the weak come from Christian faith? Simply this, Old Testament and into the New. Because Christian faith will declare that we are created in God's image. And so I go go visit somebody in the psychiatric ward, and they're in solitary, like they're being held on their own. And I'm praying and I can't see them. You can only see them by camera or something like that. And my heart is breaking. And you know what my prayer is? Dear God, I pray that a nurse or a doctor or somebody will know that that individual is created in the image of God. As otherwise, they'll make all the kinds of judgments. Nietzsche, who is no big friend of christian faith he's the philosopher who declared god is dead but by the way you should actually read that because it's in a story and it wasn't Nietzsche saying hip hip hooray god is dead something else was going on look it up you can look everything up on google now we just boom done Nietzsche put it this way he said if you say you don't believe in god but you do believe in the rights of every person and the requirements to care for all of the weak and the poor then you are still holding on to christian beliefs whether you will admit it or not The flip side of this is that, as I said, religion can go bad and some non-religious people, this is true in our community, can be absolutely wonderful at living out Christian values. Jesus Christ says in John chapter 8, in light of all of this, if the Son, S-O-N, if the Son of God sets you free, then, you guys know it, you are free indeed. One of the things that we must face as we look to the future seeking to live this gospel and bear witness to the love of Jesus Christ in the world. We've got to be honest. And the church, churches aren't always great at being honest. And sometimes, you know, it doesn't mean you, you say everything all the time. But one of the things we must face as we look to the future, speaking faith in this world, is the reality that for very many people, and you'll know some of them in your lives, for very many people, when they threw off religion, their lives became better. You ever hear those stories of people saying, you know, um, if, if they walked away from faith or church, things went terribly? The truth is, for a lot of people who walk away from religion, now I'm talking about particularly bad religion, but for a lot of people who walk away from religion, their lives get better. Now what are you going to do about that? You might know somebody like this. In religious circles, if it's a threat, like if the circle is trying to to be kind of insular and protect itself from the outside world, that's when you'll hear phrases like, they've wandered far from God. Right? It's all of this threat language. The truth is, and we must accept this, it's not the end of the talk, don't worry, but the truth is that sometimes, and Jesus Christ himself told us this, This was his first accusation to the Pharisees. The truth is that religion can become the very thing that prevents us and others from seeing God. So, we're in the place in general and in culture and society where in many ways people have chosen to move away from religion but for the most part, what has replaced it? I don't mean entirely, and it's not to castigate and say everything outside the church is bad. I don't believe that. But for the most part, what has replaced religion, because if you were around 200 years ago or 100 years ago or maybe 50 or certainly 500 years ago, the, the, we've said this many, many times from here, the, the standard world you would live in would be a religious world. So for the most part, in the West, what has replaced religion? A good author that I was reading recently put it this way. What's replaced it is all this getting and spending. And that's pretty much what's on offer. Not entirely. But self, to a large degree, has taken the place of religion. And some people would applaud this as if this is a good move. And what we need to do as Christians is say, if the religion was false religion, correct, then it is a good move. Because that religion was preventing people from seeing God. Now, if now the worship is of self, that doesn't mean you're going to see God there. But at least it won't be kind of a false faith. So what's happened? We mentioned last week this term displacement. If you grew up years ago, generations ago, you would know this. And some people long for these days. We talk about it. You knew your place. Religion would tell you your place. Your community would remind you, and this could be your gender would dictate that, right? Well, what dictates it is is the standards of the time, but they would say, well, because you're this, then your place is here. And some of you grew up in that, and for some, those were the good old days. Things seemed to work. It might be better to get back to it, but we must we must accept the reality that our Lord Himself pushed against this. He was willing to break those barriers. Today, instead of this knowing your place, now this is what, and you could think of younger people today going to university and trying to get, you know, first job, get a career, whatever. Today, nobody tells you your place, or at least they don't have the authority to do it. So if a minister tries to tell you, or if a grandparent tries, whatever it is, right? Because instead of somebody telling you what your place is, the burden now is you have to make your own place in society. And those who are at the point of trying to do that know that that is a terrible burden. Make your own place and project your own meaning. That's the world we're living in right now. But what if, back to Havel, what if meaning, true, lasting meaning, is transcendent? It's above us. It's not something we make. The Christian claim, at its heart, is not a religious claim. See what I'm saying? I'm I'm making a line between Christian faith and religion accepting that Christianity is still religious. But the Christian claim at its heart is not a religious claim. We, as we seek to bear witness to the love of Jesus Christ, are not trying to get people to sign up for a religion. The Christian claim is that, now I can say this from my faith, I would ask for the power of the Holy Spirit, to be present. Because if I just say it and I don't believe it, then you shouldn't listen to me. The Christian claim is that peace and purpose and rest are found in Him. In Jesus Christ. And you can put your faith in Him. You can respond. His love is first. Remember what Peter said? When I find out that God loves me, that I can love him in return. The claim is not in religion and not in self. Martin Scorsese is one of uh, our time's most famous film directors, right? And I've enjoyed a number of his movies. They tend to be extremely violent or... um, Pretty, pretty harsh, but they have a heart, most of them. Uh, Martin Scorsese... Oh, I should have brought the book up. I've got the book in my office. You can borrow it if you'd like. Um, Martin Scorsese has kind of a labor of love that he's wanted to do for years, and that's make this movie called Silence. It's after a book by the same title. Japanese author writing about a time in the history of Japan when uh, the government, the uh, was trying to wipe out Christianity. And so at that time, mostly Catholic priests and such, they were killing Christians and particularly Christian leaders. And the book centers around three priests, one who has basically gone missing and two who were looking for this priest because the priest would be captured and imprisoned and tortured And then the pinnacle of their torture would be that an image of Jesus Christ would be put on the ground in front of them, sometimes months after after their imprisonment, so they're weak and they're tired. And they were to step on that image of Jesus Christ, right on Christ's face, and renounce their faith. If they didn't, they would be killed. And many Christians were killed in such a way. The heart of the book is what happens when one of the central characters, I think it's played by Liam Neeson, is faced with this with this struggle. And I won't give it away. The book is called Silence. The reason it's called Silence is because the question is, how can God be speaking and how can God be present if he's letting this kind of thing happen? There is one time in the book in which Christ speaks, and it is astounding. But you've got to watch the movie or read the book. I'm telling you this story because there's a young actor who plays one of the priests, one of the priests who was searching for Liam Neeson. And not only is he British, and not only has, does he have great hair, but he's very good looking. And so he's the kind of person that you should listen to, because he matters in this world. <laughs> and uh, his name is Andrew Garfield. He says that he was raised ag- agnostic, atheist even, that the most important thing that his parents instilled in him was to be open to all things. He speaks of that positively. But he says, I certainly wasn't raised with any Christian faith in mind. In setting out to prepare for the role of this priest, he worked hard. He this is what he looks like normally, he lost 40 pounds. So he became extremely skinny because he, to play someone who was tortured and and starved. He also took up the Ignatian spiritual exercises. These were written out by St Ignatius. And he had a Catholic priest who led him through these. He also went on a 7-day silent retreat. He really wanted to get into the mind of a Catholic priest, particularly at that time. He talks about these Ignatius Ignatian exercises, and in an interview, I saw some of it on the Late Show with Stephen Colbert, and there's an article that you can look up. I've left it on your So What sheet. Um, you can find it that way. The interviewer asks Andrew Garfield, In all of this preparation... And particularly in light of the Ignatian exercises, which are mostly just steps of imagining being with Jesus in a given scene, whether it's healing somebody or at Jesus' crucifixion. But it gives you ways to just imagine it. What was most surprising to you, the interviewer asked, and this was Garfield's response. He said, I didn't expect to fall in love with Jesus. And then, I don't have the thing with me. The interviewer says after that, he paused, kind of choked up a bit, put his hand on his chest, closed his eyes, and then almost as a prayer, but now laughing, said, Oh my God! I had no idea how easy it would be to fall in love with Jesus. Christian faith for the (laughs) non-religious. We've got to get good at this. Because nobody's signing up just to be part of a religion anymore. And in a way, thanks be to God. Now, actually, as soon as I say that, I think there are ways in which the world's becoming more religious. But if we want people to know Jesus Christ, we have to find the ways to speak Christian faith for non-religious. For Garfield, it was this old exercise, the Ignatian Exercises. So my question to you simply is this. Whether you're a Christian here or not, would you like to fall in love with Jesus? Put your faith in Jesus Christ. Trust me. You might not know me. Maybe you do. I'm not asking you to join any religion. I'd love you to come here to church, but that's secondary. I don't want you to become really religious. Certainly not in some of those difficult ways transcendence. I know what this is like. I'll write it out one day, and I can only just point at it now. I know experiences like Vaclav Havel's. I was in City Market. Do You ever go to that grocery store? And I walked up the stairs. Don't take the escalator if you're able-bodied. Walk up the stairs. There you go. A few more calories. I walked up the stairs. It must have been morning time because actually at the top of those stairs, it's just it's beautiful. And as I walked in, and I was Praying, kind of. I was thinking about God's goodness. I don't, I mean, it doesn't happen all the time. It just happened to be. And I walked up, and I just all of a sudden surveyed the scene as I got to the top of the stairs. And all of a sudden, it was like everything just lit on fire. This eternal co-present that Havel talks about. And I, in my Christian faith, was led to say, Heavenly Father, thank you for your love for this whole world. I had to go shopping. Would you like to put your faith in Jesus? Would you like to fall in love with Jesus? And for us, how are we going to help others in this post-religious world in which we often find ourselves? How are, how are we going to help others to meet and fall in love with Jesus Christ? Isaiah chapter fifty-eight. The chapter ends with this promise: if you do these, if you get true religion, then your light. This is a promise to you still. Then your light will break forth like the dawn. What a difference. Instead of turning someone into twice the son of hell that you are, your light breaks like the dawn. This is the hope for us. And it isn't yesterday. It's today and tomorrow. Let us pray. Come Holy Spirit, would you guide us in this endeavor? I just saw the screen. That's a long time for Garfield's picture. Sorry about that. It's supposed to be this blank shot. Anyway, he's a good-looking guy. Um, Holy Spirit, would you guide us in this consideration? Father God, I feel that there's... It doesn't really matter that I feel it unless it's true, I guess. But I feel that there's a transition happening in, in this world, in church culture, We live in a world now, even in North Vancouver here, where many people that we know and care for have never been to church or don't have, you know, some idea from the past. Others have found themselves, they've walked away from religious experience and they might well say, my life is better now. Help us in our Christian faith to bear witness, Lord Jesus Christ, to your love and bring people, Heavenly Father, to your Son the author and perfecter of our faith. We pray this in Christ's name.